The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. And welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, May 11th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, Kathy Cherry. Kathy Cherry is the principal of Purple Cherry Architects, the mother of an 18-year-old son on the autism spectrum and the sister of a Down syndrome brother. Through her lifelong interactions and observations of her brother and son and her educational advocacy for her son, She has an acute awareness of relevant triggers and environmental issues that impact individuals with disabilities. Our topic today is creating successful opportunities in school, work, and at home for children with autism spectrum disorders. Kathy, thank you for joining us. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Kathy, was there anything really pivotal in raising your son that caused you as an architect to consider arranging the environment as an important intervention? I think that what happened, actually, it wasn't a specific event. It was just the series of years and days and months raising him and understanding that when particular conflicts did occur, that it was not the optimum situation for those conflicts. And and knowing as an architect that especially if I had altered something or had the opportunity to alter something, that I could have managed that conflict in a different way. And also I think that, and that's because Matthew has two siblings, so we have three children living under one roof. But I also think that for myself as the mother of Matthew, my number one goal is to instill in my son the greatest opportunity for independence so that he is able and capable of taking care of himself Clearly, he will need supports for the rest of his life, but knowing that if certain opportunities are made available to him, that he learns those skills better, and again, that's an environmental issue to me. That's wonderful. Um, Kathy, can you elaborate on that? I need to just catch something at the door, and I'll be right back. Sure. Um, For all of the listeners, I am not sure the age of your children, but one thing I can tell you is that when our son, our son was adopted from Russia at the age of three, and we did not actually receive the diagnosis of autism until approximately the age of six. Prior to that, he was uh, diagnosed with pervasive development disorder, not otherwise specified, along with fetal alcohol as a result of the Russian orphanage um, situation and the Russian setting. And then also OCD, ADHD, ultimately then came the diagnosis of autism, reactive attachment disorder, and bipolar. 
So as he grew, obviously more and more, particularly in an academic environment, that was really when we became more fully aware of the struggles that he was having and ultimately the struggles that we were having. Now, because he was my first child, technically, and my other two birth children came behind him, the challenge was that I, as a mother, had no understanding of what chronologically should happen for the development of a child because I had not had a child set precedent before him. So it was very confusing to me as Matthew grew and aged because certain social behaviors, uh, very disruptive behaviors, I could not figure out if they were developmental or if they were related to the spectrum and to all of the diagnosis that he had at that point then received. So as he started to get older and then my other children started to age, that's when I got the best education because my middle child began to go past at approximately the age eight or nine, my son, who was then five years older. And that's when I really began to understand the severity of Matthew's issues. Kathy, thank you so much for filling in. You're welcome. Let me me also clarify, Terry, my son is high-functioning autism. Okay. So people understand that when I talk about some of his skill sets, that obviously it's related to his higher level of the spectrum. Okay. And just to explain to our listeners, um, Kathy graciously offered to to fill in. I needed to take a delivery um, of refrigerated uh, medicine. And as I would like to say to uh, all of the listeners, humor is the number one most critical um, element that's needed, in my opinion, in raising a household of children in which a child on the ASD spectrum is included because the humor helps you to lighten the situation and actually carry the load. Yeah, and this, I, I thought it would be simple, just pop it in the refrigerator. The, the box is, is bigger than I am. I have oh. <laughs> bacon out of the refrigerator. Left you need to take it apart or did you get it in? <laughs> no, I, there's, um, there's carnage all over the, the kitchen. I've, oh. I've flung everything out of the uh, refrigerator and, and put the whole box right in. Okay, so, that's great. Well, Kathy, I, I thought that something really interesting about what you were saying before I went to the door was the fact that you didn't just look at it as something that your son had to change, but you looked at ways to accommodate him that would make him more successful. You arranged the environment to make him more successful rather than inflexibly um, uh demanding that he make all the changes. Yes, and I also think that you need to, as a parent, know how to uh, almost maneuver and manipulate your entire family, orchestrate the scenario so that you can provide that success for your autistic child. Yes. So the the different settings where the environment can be designed to maximize success for the individual on the spectrum and, and maximize safety for their family members, peers, and others, what are those different environments? Obviously, in in their day, when they are younger, first is the school environment. And that, for many of our children, goes up to the age of 21, and specifically for my son will also go to the age of 21. The second is, obviously, when they age out of the school system, would be the workplace and what their whole future and their adulthood is about. And the third is, obviously, in the home. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's talk first about the school environment. Okay. What's the most important consideration? Um, did I say school? 
our home. I want to start with school, okay? okay. What's the most important consideration when designing school spaces uh, yeah. when they're smaller and as they age and grow? Okay, and one of the... One of the challenges for me on the response is asking me what is the single most important. So instead, I've got to answer that probably with three responses, which is first that there be very clear wayfinding for these children. Wayfinding is a a more um, confusing way to basically say signage, but understand that wayfinding does not have to include the use of language. So wayfinding can be done by coloration or spatial relationships so that the way in which a child moves through the school is not confusing for them, that every day it is very anticipated and expected as to where they need to be. And to me, one of the tools as a designer is to use wayfinding. The simple way of explaining that would be if you imagine um, that the children need to go to the gym and and depending upon the spectrum of the children, that down the passageway to the gym has the red dot in the center of the floor, then that is wayfinding. You frequently will see it in hospital settings as well. Where it really plays out is to use it for managing the kids to actually know to, to stay in place, in my opinion, if you ever visit some of the schools, you will see that clever teachers have taken um, duct tape or masking tape, and they have created these wayfinding um, set. You know, they've created these wayfinding uh, dots on their floors, and that's really their way of saying to children, "Stay in place and stay on that dot." So I had visited a health center that was being designed for an autistic school. And what had happened is that the interior designer had used eight beautiful colors. The challenge was that all eight were used in a mix of um, no rhyme or reason. And what had failed to happen was communication and dialogue with the nurse. So when we called the nurse in and asked her about the behaviors of the children and what most of her kids did, it was very clear then that what needed to change was they needed to use the colors for wayfinding tools. And so that's what was altered. The second thing, most important consideration to me, is social space. Um, I would imagine that many of the listeners have experienced where their children are constantly interrupting, constantly interrupting. They're crossing across you if you're reaching for something. They're stepping too close and interrupting conversation. And to me, that social acceptance is critical to their success as they mature and live in an independent, potentially independent or semi-supported setting because it is all about being accepted in the community, whether it be the community of individuals with special needs or the community of typical developing peers. So social space, to me, is about watching where paths are most often um, created within spaces and allowing enough space so that the children do not conflict. So that just translates into 
being aware of where you place furniture settings, being aware of your passageways and making them wide enough so that these children can um, have the room to pass each other without conflict, and and then also any tools that can be used to express to these children where they should be standing and what's the appropriate distance from each other. And then the last most important consideration, I would say, is distractibility. So the answer to that question actually depends upon the spectrum because some children are easily distracted. Some children need the stimulation. So in dialoguing with the teachers and the educators, I believe that we as designers can understand which and how we need to affect our environment in order to support reduced distraction or increased stimulation. Okay, that was a lengthy answer, wasn't that, Terry? Well, that was a wonderful, eloquent answer. So okay, you, thank you. You said <laughs> wayfinding uh, with the use of coloration and spatial relationships, social spaces and paths, and distractibility. It sounds like you can use the wayfinding tools to enhance the sp- social space issue. I would agree with that. All yep. right, and we will be right back from break with Kathy Cherry. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. More about the school environment when we come back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Kathy Cherry of Purple Cherry Architects. And before the break, we were talking about the school environment and how that could be arranged to make the student, the child with autism, more successful. We talked about wayfinding, social space, and distractibility. And, Kathy, how do you reduce classroom distractibility involving furniture, windows, colors, and patterns? Well, with regards to let's make an assumption that the children are an easily distracted um, group then what you would want to do, obviously, is reduce any ability for that child to be, be have any kind of side movement within their vision, cone of vision. And that more often than not comes from either because classroom doors are glass or because windows flank an entire wall and, I, and the windows are low. And I don't want to take away the opportunities for these children to be connected to the outdoors. But I think that if those windows connect directly to an outdoor play area, then they either need to be located in such a way that they're not in the cone of vision of the students as they are seated or that those windows are held at a little higher elevation so that when seated, you can't technically see in a horizontal direction. You can only see in a diagonal towards the sky and I think that helps to reduce the distractibility. It's all about the movement that's happening around them. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. What about sensory issues involving lighting and sound? Well, obviously, um, again, each time that I respond to these, I will say it depends on the special needs issues that are going on with that autistic child. Ideally, an acoustical consultant would be involved on a project, if particularly if you're doing a large school, and you would be dealing with reverberation, ballast noise that comes off of the lighting, the sound decibel level of an enunciator system, the white noise that comes through the ductwork from the um, air conditioning system. We, as uh, typical individuals, do not are not usually bothered by these things, but individuals with auditory processing issues are severely bothered by these issues. So that's how you would manage them is by working. Certainly we are aware of them and ideally working with an acoustical consultant for the installation of some acoustical materials and applications help to further reduce sound reverberation. Right. My son was tested and he particularly had a problem with white noise and that's probably something that many people, you know, take for granted as a non-issue. They don't even take it for granted because they don't even know the issue exists. Absolutely. So That's you, right. you had also made an observation about um, the the heating and cooling system, that that should be able to be individually controlled per classroom. Did that have to do with the hyperacusis issue or did that have to do with other issues? I'm sorry, can you repeat for me, Terry, does that have to do with? Does that have to do with the auditory issues, having individual heating and cooling systems? No, no, no. It ha- that actually has to do with thermal comfort. So that's, in my opinion, would be more of a tactile issue. That, an, that obvi- One of the things that I'm sure many listeners are aware, if, if their child is like my son, my son will wear a leather jacket 
gloves, long pants, and a hat in the middle of a 90-degree day and stand outside and crack his whip. That's something that he absolutely loves to do. He is the rebirth of Indiana Jones. And he has no sense. He, he, he doesn't have the sensitivity to the heat in the same way we do. He also doesn't have the sensitivity to cold. So you have to watch that because they can obviously do harm to themselves being out in a cold situation. So thermal comfort for children that do have tactile or sensory issues for their skin, thermal comfort is critically important. I'm going to expand that a little bit more and say thermal comfort is generally important to everybody. So in an ideal classroom setting, each teacher should have control of the lighting, the level of lighting, and the and the temperature within their individual classroom so that at all times they can manage the comfort of their students. Well, how do they accommodate all the students if the students have different issues? Ah, that's definitely a challenge, and they can't accommodate it through the control of the heating and air conditioning system. You can't, unless you can, unless the educators or the head of schools can um, collect groups of children together with parallel issues, then that would, to me, would be the only way that I could think that you could individually manage that situation. I guess that um, having a small classroom size as possible yeah, not being in a class of 30 kids and then having control of each classroom is ideal. Or homeschooling, perhaps, you know, making a playroom uh, for teaching in your home. Sure. One of, one of the ideal things that hopefully is happening in our schools of the 21st century is that they no longer will be single rooms that um, are large enough to contain, say, four different mini-environments but in fact that they will be four different mini-environments with the ability to connect them by movable partitions or not. And that would allow a level of controllability of the environments of each of those mini-environments. And another thing that you're bringing to mind, Kathy, is that behaviors on the part of individuals with autism may be due to sensory and other issues, physiological issues, that a psychologist or a school administrator wouldn't even know to, you know, think about, respect, or dignify. They have to know that the kids have underlying physiological issues that have to do with sound sensitivity or um, hormonal issues where they don't feel heat or cold the same way as maybe you or I do. And those things need to be respected and accommodated for. Absolutely. But I, but I will tell you that what I, I totally agree with what you said, but what I have found more often than not frequently is that many parents are afraid to share the realities of what's going on at home to the public environment because what's going on at home frequently is not happy and pleasant it is often quite difficult, particularly for us during the years of puberty. And so unless you're willing to share all of that, the personal information that is happening, the educators are unable to know everything about that child. And I think that parents are the best caregivers and doctors and, and assessors of their own child. Well, I, I think part of the problem is that, you know, it's it costs, less for the state and uh, social service agents um, and school administrators to 
fluff away these issues. And parents are so afraid that they are going to say something that rocks the boat about the the issues, the physiological issues or the needs that their children have. There have been parents who have been threatened, you know, to shut up about gluten-free, casein-free diet or else, you know, or else someone would come after them and, and threaten their guardianship of their child, things like that. So parents are afraid to talk about what's going on with their child or the challenges that they have at home for fear that someone will separate them from their children or that they'll be said to have Munchausen's or something like that. It's so much cheaper for the powers that be to ignore and medicate or, you know, whatever. Does does this make sense? Yes, except I I have not, um, thankfully and blessedly, never ever experienced any of that. I certainly have had to be an incredibly strong advocate and very, very vocal to get my son to the level of services that he has. And it's a good thing they didn't ever tell me to shut up because I sure wouldn't and I'd be doing the opposite, which would be taking it to the press. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm not aware of those situations, so that's very sad to hear that. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate how you're saying you would have taken it to the press because um, in a situation um, that I've, Currently, I've been involved in that's what I told the family, you know, you've got to take this to the press. And another family who was in the same situation said the best thing you can do is take it to the press. Yes. I think the best thing that you can do is be as vocal as you can about everything that happens because I have watched where parents have painted the pretty pictures when in reality that might be 25% of the time, but there's another 75%. And they're actually harming their services more than they're helping their services. At least that's been my experience here in the state of Maryland. Well, Kathy, you mentioned the home. So I was going to cover the work environment yet because that seemed logical to segue to from school, but let's talk about the home. Okay, you got it. Okay. What were the most dangerous settings or items or situations? Uh, I would say that one of the things I learned is my motto would be out of sight, out of mind. What obviously drives these children is impulse, and impulsivity leads to some very dangerous settings. So if you take away out of the sight the issue that is of concern, such as a gas stove. I would never have a gas stove in a home. I don't care if you can't cook any other way. I would never have a gas stove because it is the the child becomes obsessed or intrigued, and so therefore their impulse leads them to try to play with. And so if you take that level of thinking to all kinds of objects, such as knives or scissors, um, and fire. So when Matthew was younger, first, I've never had a gas stove. Sure, I'd love to have a gas stove, but I never will. And second, um, as our child was young, what we learned was that we simply had to remove everything. We had to remove everything that was knives and scissors, and we put them up. It wasn't that they were locked. It wasn't that he was hunting for them. It was that if they were in sight, they became an object of interest, and then he used them impulsively to try to unlock doors or to try to cut hoses and other things that make no sense. Um, with fire, this was critical. With fire, we locked it all up in a safe. So there was a very long period of time where uh, there would not have been matches or a lighter within any um, accessible area within the home. 
And you mentioned that Matthew had siblings, and we may need to break here in the middle of your answer, but okay. what were the kinds of problems that erupted um, that, and how did you learn to stave that off? Okay. First, uh, probably the biggest issue had to do with Matthew, Matt, two things, Matthew's obsessiveness towards his own objects and the inability to find the words to communicate when something was violated. So if he brought an object down into the kitchen in a public space and he placed it on the table and he walked away from it because he got distracted to do something else and another child entered and then picked that object up totally innocently, Matthew's attack was never one was not a verbal um, communication. Matthew's attack started out as a physical attack. And then obviously that triggered the younger child to respond the same way. The second thing that happened in our life is that Matthew is notorious for taking things that doesn't belong to him. In fact, he hoards. And in taking things that don't belong to him, he frequently would take them, obviously use them in ways not intended, and break them. So the whole life of his younger children, of his younger siblings, it became a violation of their spaces and everything Matthew touched got broken. So then that became a really rigid line of you cannot enter your brother's room and you cannot enter our closet. Now, while we've made those issues incredibly strict for the 15 years since we adopted him at the age of three, the realities are that he still breaks those rules and he's very mischievous about it. He's very deceivious about it. Deceivious about it. That's not a word. And he frequently um, gets caught. Now, it doesn't happen nearly with the same um, level of repetition that it did when he was young. So what would happen is, um, it was a, it, my, my younger children have an inherent tendency to find Matthew guilty before Matthew is technically found to be guilty because they've lived with this action for so many years. What really got hard in our house was as my son went into puberty, he became passive aggressive and that would come out with the flipping of objects or the banging his body. He is also self-mutilate, so when he goes into a fit, um, he he punches himself in the face until he bleeds in the nose. He slams his head on the corners of cabinets. He body slams the window or the wall, and ultimately he also slams the wall to dent it. And then he shuts down in verbal communication completely and freezes for what can be more than an hour. Oh, my. Okay, let's talk yep. about how we can make that situation safer when we come back yep. from break. Thanks to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on 
the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten, and Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way with celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages. Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Kathy Cherry of Purple Cherry Architects. And before the break, we were talking about um, the spaces in the home and how to make them safer. Kathy, you had challenges with your son, Matthew, who's now 18 years old, um, self-mutilating and self-harming. And how did you take care of that to make life safer for Matthew? Well, how, you know, how, how, I, how I took care of it versus what I would do if I were given the option to start over, kind of a little bit different, but I'll express um, the two most successful ways to stop the behavior were, one, just walk away. Literally the minute his audience was removed while it took him time to get back um, out of that state with not having the audience, he actually could get out of that state faster than if he had the audience. I observed once where he laid in the middle of the grass for two hours not moving because he knew he had the audience of his um stepsister and brother-in-law on the porch and once the audience was removed he comes out of it but what i would say is that it was it's pure coincidence that i live in a 1740 house and the 1740 house has two stairways so if doing a home from new the two the couple of things that i would do to help reduce these opportunities are one do not place the child's bedroom immediately adjacent to another child's bedroom, mostly because you're just, you need to remove the opportunity for that child to fail. You, in doing the, in placing bedroom side by side, it's natural for children to enter each other's bedroom. It's something that children want to do and then he sees all of the objects. The reality is if you can control it and not have that connection, then you are setting them up for greater success. Second, the two staircases 
was a happens to be a way in which I could communicate through the house. You know, Jason, you go up through the left stair because I knew Matthew was getting ready to come down through the right stair. And these stairs are only about 20 feet apart from each other because it's a small house, but it has two stairs. And then the third thing would be that I would, had I known this, but I didn't know this when we restored our home when my son was prepubescent, was had I known that the physical effort would have existed, I would have put um, plywood behind my drywall so that when he bangs that drywall, he does not punch a hole through the drywall. So I would have thought about making things more durable. Mm-hmm. And then I could even go further and say things such as signage that I would actually apply. I would obviously make signage on a piece of paper and tape it up for lengthy periods of time to reinforce issues such as privacy um, when he started into that issue of early pu- puberty. All right. You talked about the two stairwells, and um, that reminds me of what you were saying about school, about keeping the children separated, pathways, wayfinding to to avoid confrontations. Yep, that's right. Okay. And then you had mentioned, um, too, about uh, using colors for markings. Is that something you can use in a bathroom situation at home and at school to remind uh, children to wash their hands before they leave the restroom and things like that? Um, you know, I would say that the uh, if the child is able to read language, I would probably say that the use of language would be more important in those types of tight settings than the use of actually language or graphics such as arrows or prompts that might help to remind them versus just the simple application of color. The other thing, though, for example, in the bathroom settings is that um, these children frequently don't have a sense of how a toilet works and how much toilet paper should go down, and obviously it leads to constant clogs. So ideally, if a commercial siphon flush toilet can be used, that would be an ideal situation. If not, then not a low-flow toilet in which the water in the tank is minimized. You need to be seeking the better-flowing toilets. In addition, I found that my having a lock on the inside of the door on your autistic child's bathroom does not work. I would absolutely not put one, and ultimately I ended up reversing the lock set simply to get the lock out of the inside of the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And the reason was because I lost the ability to be able to check to see what he was saying was what he was doing or that he was on task because his bathroom routine would be a 45-minute to an hour routine, which for listeners that do not have a child on the spectrum, that is an exhausting process every single night. And um, there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about. I'm forgetting it right this minute. If it comes back to me, I'll tell you. Well, I really appreciate your understanding of toilet clogs. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We have a tendency to think we're the only ones to, to whom things are happening, but toilet oh, no. and, and really lengthy bathroom routines yes. and, and, you know, five towels used for, for yes. a bath. And, uh, yeah, these are things that may, are probably common to, to lots of families. Yes, and I did, I did remember two other things. I think that a t- the use of a timer is a very good thing to try to help. I mean, the goal is to... Uh, ad- help support your child to be able to adapt to a 
a living environment when they get to be an adult. And so if it's not going to be acceptable to live with peers and take an hour in the bathroom, you have to work with your child to prepare them for that level of independence if that is what you seek as a parent, and that is certainly something that we seek for our son. Um, the other thing that I never thought it would be helpful, but it's hilarious and I learned it, and it's something that is, to me, the difference between myself as an architect and how I see things visually and my husband, who's not an architect, who isn't going to see the world the same way. But I learned that it's pure coincidence that our door has a cut such that there's about a, a half an inch gap at it. And as I come down the staircase, I can see my son's shadows of his feet the reason that this became significant is my son went through a process or a time in his life where he was actually not showering at all, and he was faking us out by turning on the shower. And the only way I learned it was one night I used that gap to observe the shadow, and then I became more acute in listening for how the water was falling on the tub from that point forward because I had discovered that, in fact, for two weeks he had not been showering. This is a very interesting life. We're laying down on the hall floor with our heads under doors. That's what we're doing. And we're looking for shadows. We're not looking for feet. But, you know, this is kind of, you know, what, again, I, I hope that this doesn't sound to your listeners like it's obsessive. It's actually, for me, it's all about the proper prompts to um, so that my child goes to a successful place for him. And he is an incredibly responsible young man at the age of 18. He can fully, you know, he, we worked with him for a long time on grocery shopping to a level of independence, literally. He got to that place. We worked with him on folding whole loads of laundry and he absolutely got there. It took about three years. We've worked with him, although not to total success, on how to ride a, a lawnmower and how to cut grass. He had no depth perception, so he would always miss, but I ultimately learned that if he rode in a circle, he could manage it. If he rode in a square, he could not because he had no ability to understand how far the wheel goes to relate to how you make a 90-degree turn. Wow, how interesting. Yep. Well, Kathy, bless you for your perseverance. And when we <laughs> come back from break, we will use that to segue to the work environment. Okay, great. Okay, so I want to thank our sponsor, Enzymedica, again. And um, are we going to break now? Okay, I guess we're not going to break yet. Okay. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> oh, there I we go. Music. I hear some music. By golly, we are going to break. And we'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. 
More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Kathy Cherry, the principal of Purple Cherry Architects and mom to 18-year-old Matthew. And Kathy, you said something really wonderful during the break about there, it, there's nothing nice about being a child and always being told to change and that um, others can accommodate uh, the child with changing the settings, et cetera. And I thought that was a really beautiful and respectful thing to say. Thank you. Yeah. So we're talking about the workplace now, and we've talked about some things about school and the home that could extend to the workplace too. But um, what do you think, oh, and here we go with that most important again, but what do you think is the most important issue to address first about different vocational training and workplace environments? I would say first that the workplace or the opportunities that the child is given is the most important um, piece, meaning that to assume to fit the child into a work center is the wrong way to address the child or the adult. The way to, in my opinion, to address it is to provide multiple work opportunities in multiple settings, which is honestly typically what vocational um, service providers do do within their facilities. And I'll expand on that. So more often than not, facilities consist of spaces that are warehouse or vocational um, settings in which individuals are supported by employees. So I'm going to say we call those individuals for us in many of our environments clients. So the clients are supported by employees, and they are actually working on productive work and a wonderful story of this is there are, there's a new product out called Lock Laces, and this is a product that's going to go national. And it actually has been produced locally in our area, and that local um, inventor has had 
one of our vocational setting training centers actually do the um, assembly of that product that will one day very shortly be in all of our sports <coughs> I apologize in all of our sports stores and so the opportunity for individuals with disabilities to be productive in their daily life is so important to them and what sincerely motivates them is money they want to earn money no different than we want to earn money we obviously earn it to support ourselves for them they're earning it because it provides them the opportunity to purchase something like food or gum or or some toy or game because that's what they want so money is a big motivator to the clients the second type of setting that will be in these vocational train, uh, vocational facilities is what we would call um, an, uh, an activity area. Think of that as a slower-paced vocational setting in which the clients are still doing a level of work effort, but it's at a much slower production rate because either their attention is simply not there or they're more physically incapacitated, so it makes the process slower. The last is typically what's known as rec and leisure, and that's really for two types of clients, either the clients that are aging out and simply don't want to work anymore or the clients who simply don't want to work and no ability to try to motivate them changes that. So that becomes more of a daycare component of these settings. The piece that goes out is called enclave groups. That's where you have job-supported employment out in the community where we might have a group of 14 individuals that actually go to Pizza Hut, get the flyers, and then take those flyers into residential settings and hang them on doorknobs. And some of those individuals might work at your local grocery store or other warehouse-type settings. Okay. Okay. What have you found that has made training and work environments easier or harder for the individuals? Uh, you know, I would say one specific thing mostly, and I want to apply it not only to the individuals but also to the employees of the center that support those individuals. Because a well-organized spatially appropriate, meaning that there's enough room and well-lit environment makes for the happiest clients. And I think when you think about us as non-special needs individuals or typically developing individuals, we want the same things. And so I think that's number one. You need to make the environment a brightly lit, um, a lot of room, uh, less clutter or clutter well organized within a contained area, and that allows the individuals to be more productive. Mm-hmm. And if you had to pick the type of job that you think your son would be best at or the kind of boss you think would be best for him, what would you say? I think that what is very important is for parents to first understand what is their child's strength that setting needs to be not complicated, but it needs to definitely play on their strength. And then they need to, um, and what, what, what I think gets tricky is that you can't necessarily go into what they want to do, and then I'll explain that in my son, what necessarily what they want to do, because then you can trigger things like their obsessive compulsive behavior. So, 
for my son, he absolutely has very strong obsessive-compulsive behavior, and it drives him. It's more of a perseveration than it is, obviously, a hand-washing issue. It's more of a hoarding and taking, stealing, and perseverating on objects. And so to put him in a retail store with clothing will set him up for failure because he obsesses about gloves, socks, ties, hats, and certainly has been known to take, steal, hide um, those types of objects. But to put him in a place that what, what, in my opinion, as his mother, my son is very personable, which is quite unique. He's got an incredible sense of humor. Um, and so he would be a charming bellboy. He would be a charming uh, gentleman at the Disney hotels opening the doors and communicating with people coming and going out of the hotel, which does happen down at those large hotels. He would be great at a hospital, not because he'd like to be at a hospital, but he is so terrific with people. So working with um, help, being an aide and helping people exit on their wheelchairs mm-hmm. out of the hospital would be terrific for him. But if I put him in a bookstore, which he would probably love to do, I'd set him up for failure because he would get obsessed about the book lines that he obsesses about, being Indiana Jones and James Bond, and he would have a hard time staying on task. So he's most successful when he's kept very active, like drying cars after car washing, but that it is doesn't contain an element of his obsession. Mm-hmm. Okay, good point. And what kind of boss? Say that again. I'm sorry, again? What kind of boss would be good for him? I'm sorry. I'm misunderstanding you, Terry. What kind of? Employer. What kind of employer would you Oh, have? my. Number one most important, compassionate. Um, these children... Uh, and all children, not just these children and our children, are, will fail. And the issue is what will they fail in and will that employer be compassionate enough to understand that it's not a malicious act. And so that would be very important for our child because our son will absolutely perform the job successfully. But if a pen is missing from a counter, it has to be understood that that pen will get back because we'll be on top of him, and he doesn't take it maliciously, but it is something that has to be worked on continuously. Well, Kathy, I want to thank you for sharing your family's experience and expertise with our listeners. Would you like to share Purple Cherry Architects' website address with listeners? Sure. Our website address, we actually have two, even though they point to the same one, is www.purplecherry.com. And the second is our studio that focuses on special needs, www.purposefularchitecture.com. Well, Kathy, again, thank you. And to our listeners, Kathy will be on hand at the Autism One Generation Rescue Conference in two weeks, as well as will be about 170 other informative presenters. Please visit www.autismone.org. The Westin is running out of rooms. That's where the conference is, and we are now booking at the Marriott Chicago Suites O'Hare right across the street on River Road. Please visit the Autism One website later today for an update on that contact information for the Marriott Chicago Suites O'Hare. Please check out the enlightening new book, Callous Disregard by Dr. Andrew Wakefield at www.callous-disregard.com. 
There will be a book signing with Dr. Wakefield for Callous Disregard on Saturday, May 29th in the Generation Rescue Lounge at the Weston O'Hare at the conference. To our listeners, for questions about this show, please email me at taranga at autismone.org. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. We'll see you in two weeks in Chicago. Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.